continuing our series we began on Easter Sunday called Aftershock. We are talking about in these days the, the powerful effects of the resurrection. We've discussed how on that first Easter weekend uh, there was an earthquake at both at the beginning and the end, these, these punctuation marks that God gave to say that something extraordinary was happening in those days. When Jesus died on the cross, the earth shook. And when Jesus rose from the grave, the earth shook. And still today, we are sitting here in this place as the after effects, as the aftershocks, if you will, of that earthquake, of that earth-shaking event that happened 2,000 years ago. When you think about earthquakes... Most of the time, we think about earthquakes as localized phenomena. You'll hear there was an earthquake in Japan. There was an earthquake in Haiti. We think about these as as localized tragedies. And yet, when we think about that earthquake that began, that earth-shaking phenomena that began at the hill of Calvary and continued with the opening of the empty tomb and continues in the lives of his disciples today, what we begin to understand is this is one earthquake that has shaken the entire world and will continue to do so. We are continuing to see the reverberations of the resurrection in the world today, and we'll continue to see that until the one who rose from the dead comes back to take us to glory. And so today we're going to talk about when the nations tremble. Here in Luke 24, we have seen two and now the third of three identical accounts in terms of the way that that Luke so skillfully arranged these inspired by the Holy Spirit for our benefit he lays out these three accounts that happened on that first Easter Sunday one early in the morning as the women went out to the tomb one a little later in the day as he comes alongside those disciples walking to the city of Emmaus and now we're seeing later on that day as Jesus appears to his disciples for the first of many times to come over those next 40 days. But he begins to speak to them here, not just about the meaning of his death and burial and resurrection for them. He begins to talk with them here about how he had for them a mission that was going to shake the entire world. A mission that we are still a part of today. And to clarify, this is not a mission just to make churches where we can come on Sunday morning and sing songs and hear a word preached about him. This is a worldwide mission that is meant to shake the nations for his glory. He is the creator of all peoples and his desire is to become the redeemer of peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation. So let's jump right in there. Verse 36. We see Christ assuring his disciples. Throughout this chapter, we have seen that their response to the resurrection was one of doubt and fear. 
When the women came back from the tomb, having seen the angels and heard the message that he was risen, they came back to tell the disciples, and they says they did not believe them. They thought that they were just telling wives' tales. They were just talking nonsense. It's just a bunch of crazy women talking about things they don't understand. They're just overcome with emotion. This isn't reality. They did not believe. And then those two disciples that were leaving Jerusalem, returning to their home in Emmaus, despised, dejected, discouraged in that, in that moment. And Jesus comes alongside them and they were kept from recognizing him because of the power of God. At that he might be able to open the word to them before he opens their eyes to see him. But they did not believe. They did not understand. They were not walking in the power of the Spirit just yet. And so Christ here again, in this upper room, He appears to them, and even seeing Him, the Scriptures here in these verses record that they were still doubting and disbelieving despite the evidence. And for 2,000 years, folks, this has been the response to His resurrection. For two thousand years despite the evidence despite the fact that the scriptures record that over 500 people saw him at one time in those 40 days prior to his ascension despite the fact that there is astounding historical evidence of the resurrection of jesus christ there are still so many in this world and perhaps many in this room this morning that still do not believe And the reminder of the scripture this morning is until he opens blind eyes, until he unstops deaf ears, until he takes hearts that have been hardened by our doubt and disbelief and changes them into hearts of flesh that begin to beat for him, until he brings revelation of the reality of the resurrection, none of us believe. Now, you may have thought that it was your experience that one day you just woke up and you figured it all out. But the reality of the Scriptures, as you look at these accounts, these were the men who were the closest to Him. They had walked with Him for three years. They had seen Him take a little boy's lunch and feed thousands of people on two separate occasions. They had seen Him walk upon the water. They had seen Him steal the storm. They had even seen him raise the dead on three separate occasions. And yet, when he rose from the dead, as he had said he would do, he had told them three times that he was going to be killed and rise from the dead. They still did not believe. New Testament scholar Robert Stein said the disciples were hesitant to believe, to accept what they knew now was true, for it was just too good to be true. You ever had one of those moments? One of those moments where reality seemed to you to be unreal because it was just too good to be true. Their Lord, their Savior was standing in front of them, and yet they were still disbelieving. In spite of the evidence right in front of their faces, they thought perhaps He's a ghost. Perhaps this isn't real. Perhaps we're hallucinating. And so Jesus tenderly begins to give them irrefutable proof of his bodily resurrection. And I emphasize that word this morning, bodily resurrection. 
Because thinking that he was a ghost, Jesus chose to prove to them that he was risen in the flesh. The same one whose flesh was crucified three days before was now standing before them, yes, in a glorified body, but in a body. Church, we do not believe that the resurrection was just some kind of spiritual reality. And Jesus proved this here as he says, come, touch me. See where the nails were. See the scar in my side. Come and see. Come and feel. And even more so, then he says, hey, and, hey, why don't you guys bring me something to eat? And I don't believe he does this because he was really hungry, because he wanted to prove to them that he was in a body. He wanted to prove to them that his resurrection was a resurrection, not just spiritually speaking, but in the reality of their existence, that he rose from the dead. He needed to give them irrefutable proof for this reason, that these were going to be the primary witnesses. In the room there, as I love what Matt said, these scared little boys in the room there, he was going to make them into men of the gospel who were going to be the primary witnesses of his resurrection. And we are sitting here today, standing on the shoulders of these giants of the faith who saw him risen, and it radically transformed their lives. One of the greatest proofs of the resurrection is that these disbelieving disciples became mighty apostles of Christ, sent out with the gospel message, proclaiming the resurrected Lord to the point of their own demise. Ten of the eleven disciples that remained would give their lives as martyrs. I don't know what it is that you would give your life for. But I've yet to meet anyone who was sane who would give their life for a lie. And the fact that these men, some being crucified, some being shot through with arrows, some being beheaded. And the fact that these men gave their lives for the reality of what they saw on that first Easter night and in the 40 days to come as he taught them and prepared them for their mission. The fact of their changed lives, that these were ordinary men, as the scripture says, and yet they did extraordinary things by the power of God that began to be displayed in and through them in those days why was it so necessary why was it so necessary that jesus give them irrefutable proof of his resurrection if you go over to first corinthians 15 the apostle paul is writing about the resurrection and there were some in the church at corinth who had rejected the resurrection or just thought that it was some kind of a spiritual reality devoid of a physical bodily reality and he wanted them to understand that the resurrection is the very cornerstone of our faith everything that we are about as the people of god followers of jesus christ is founded upon the idea of the resurrection we are not just a people of biblical morality we are not just a people who follow a historical figure. We are a people who believe that He is risen, and that's the very cornerstone of our faith. So much so that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's whole argument is, if Christ has not been raised, then we're wasting our time here this morning. 
This is the one thing that matters above everything else. According to 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And that held true 2,000 years ago, and it still holds true today, church. This is where the rubber meets the road for us. We are putting all of our eggs in this basket as followers of Jesus Christ. The dividing line between those who are following Christ and those who are not is not just a moral lifestyle. It's not a political agenda. It's not a certain socioeconomic status or that you've completed a certain level of Bible study or memorized certain scripture verses. The dividing line between those who are following Jesus and those who are not is we are clinging to the reality of the resurrection. We are clinging to the one who rose from the dead, defeated death for us. So we see Christ assuring his disciples, showing them, come, touch me. See me as I eat this fish. Recognize this is reality in front of you. What seems to be too good to be true is all that you need for your hope. Secondly, beginning in verse 44, we see Christ's assignment for his disciples. You see, the reason that Christ had to bring such great assurance to his disciples was because their assignment was going to blow their minds. He did not come and appear to them just so they could have some cool story to tell when they gathered together on Friday nights. He came and appeared to them and showed them the reality of his bodily resurrection and assured them of the truth of what had taken place because they were going to need to come back to that upper room in their minds many times in the years to come. They were going to need to be reminded of what they saw and heard in those 40 days in the next 40 years as they went out into all the world. On those days when they were facing death, they were going to need to be reminded that their Savior had defeated death and there was nothing, there was nothing in all this world that could overcome them. They were more than conquerors through Christ. They needed this moment. And then Christ begins to give them an assignment that still holds true for his disciples today. See, church, it's really easy for us to look at these early disciples and say, well, yeah, but those were the the guys who became the apostles. Those were the guys that God used to to raise up the early church in the world. Those were the guys that that God used to to write the New Testament for us. These, These are the powerhouses. But as Matt said so well, these were just scared little boys. And they were getting ready to have something put in front of them that would make them shake in their boots. Or sandals, whichever way you want to see it. Christ's assignment for his disciples, first of all, was this. They were called upon to wake up to the promises of Scripture. He begins to open the Scriptures to them. And he begins to do just what he did for those disciples along the road to Emmaus. Begins to show them all the places in the Old Testament scriptures that were pointing to him. As we talked about last week, perhaps he started at Genesis 3.15. That promise of the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. That seed of a woman who would come and crush the head of a serpent. His, his heel would be bruised, but the head of the serpent would be crushed under 
his heel. And perhaps he started there and began to trace that promise through the scriptures. Perhaps he went to Psalm 22 and showed them the crucifixion in Psalm 22. Perhaps he went to Isaiah 53 and showed them that he was the suffering servant who was both dead, buried, and then resurrected in Isaiah chapter 53. Whatever he showed them, he showed them this reality that Scripture points to Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed, 1 Timothy 3 says. Leon Morris said, there is no part of Scripture that does not bear its witness to Jesus. And church, I want to keep bringing you back to this place. I want to keep bringing you back to this reality that as you read the Word of God, and I know right now if you're reading with us in, in the Bible Project this year, we are right in the, in the thick of some difficult chapters in Isaiah. I was reading some of it last night, and it's just a lot of judgment. I mean, a lot of sinful nations receiving the judgment of God. And there's this place where we, even as we're reading through the Scriptures, we can, can begin uh, to get disheartened. What's this all about, God? Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing your wrath all over the pages of, the, of this scripture, but what's the ultimate end goal here? But we remind ourselves that it's all meant to point us back to Christ. That he was the one who took the wrath of God upon himself. That's what the cross was about. It was not about him just setting a nice example of self-sacrifice for us. It was that he bore the weight of the wrath of God that should have fallen on us and will duly fall on all those who reject him. And so he calls them here to wake up to the promises of Scripture, to see Christ in the pages of God's word. From Genesis to Revelation, he's all over the place. You've just got to look for him. Secondly, he calls us to be witnesses to all peoples about the Savior. This is where we begin to blow their minds. He was saying to these little boys there in the room who are shaking in their boots, who don't know what to make of the fact that the one who died on the cross on Friday is now standing face to face with them, and he's eating a fish sandwich. They're trying to figure out what does all this mean. And he's slaying before them. He is laying before them a mission to radically impact the entire world. Up to this point, these guys have never been farther than 30 miles from their home. They've been up to Galilee. They've been down around Jerusalem. They were confined to an area much, not much bigger than Breckenridge County all the days of his ministry and now he's saying you're going to go out and you're going to change the world with the message of this gospel you're going to change the world with the message of this gospel this was nothing new it had always been it had always been church the plan of god to rock the nations with the reality of the resurrected lord it had always been his plan. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when he first called Abraham out of Ur. He called him and said, you're going to walk with me, Abraham, and I'm going to bless you. And through you, Abraham, and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. God has always had a global plan. And we get such tunnel vision. 
And we say ridiculous things like, well, you know, why would we go to India when there are plenty of lost people here? Why would we travel to Indonesia with the gospel? Surely there's plenty of other folks that can do that. But I'm so thankful that these disciples didn't say, you know, Lord, surely you can send somebody else. They had that Isaiah 6 kind of mentality when the, when the Lord said, who, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah got it and he said, Here I am, Lord, send me. And a part of Isaiah's message throughout the book of Isaiah is that God has a plan to radically impact all the peoples of the world. This is not just New Testament, folks. It's always been the plan of God. And I fear that in our generation that we will somehow miss this. We will become so focused on our Jerusalem that we will forget that he has called us to the ends of the earth. This shaking of the nations is depicted so well in the second psalm. In verse 8, the Lord says, Ask of me, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That seems to be strange, doesn't it? Rejoice with trembling. But that's exactly what was happening with those disciples in that upper room. They were rejoicing at the reality of the resurrection, and yet it was still fearful to them. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments emotionally where it was just too good to be true, but the Lord was revealing to them a reality that was going to empower them for their mission. And I want to go ahead and say to us, church, we don't have the capacity to do what God has called us to do. In and of ourselves, we do not have the ability to accomplish this worldwide mission. And we would be so tempted to say, well, let's just focus on what we can do right here in this place, right here in Breckenridge County, right here in McQuady, right here in the state of Kentucky. If we, if we go out that far, that'll be far enough. And yet he has called us to the very ends of the earth, and it requires a supernatural empowering. Now, we're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come. As we walk into the book of Acts, the, the, the sequel to the book of Luke, we're going to walk into the book of Acts and we're going to begin to see the power of the Holy Spirit poured out. But he promised it right here. And he's saying to them, you must, to accomplish this mission, you must walk in the power of the Spirit. He says in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. You have seen this. You have heard this. You have touched me. You are witnesses of these things. In the book of Acts, we'll see the word witnesses used 29 times to describe their activity in the world. And behold, verse 49, listen, pay attention. I'm getting ready to say something really important. Don't miss this. That's what behold means in verse 49. I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Ghost. He's talking about that Holy Spirit. He's saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He had already told them before the crucifixion. He had already said, hey, guys, listen, i got to leave. And they're going, what's the deal, Jesus? We don't want you to go anywhere. He said, I've got to leave so that something better may come. 
so that someone better might come. Jesus in his body was confined to one place at a time. He chose that confinement as a part of his ministry to us. And yet he was going to send the Holy Spirit that would not be confined in that way. He was going to send the Holy Spirit that would inhabit the hearts of his disciples as they went out to preach the gospel. He was going to send the Holy Spirit that would constantly be proclaiming him through the lips of his disciples. He was going to send the Holy Spirit to empower them for their mission in the world because they could not do it on their own. And yet we have created ways of doing church in our American culture that have little to no need of the Holy Spirit. We can market the message. Get it out on Facebook, a little Twitter, Instagram, whatever the newest, hottest thing is. We don't need the Holy Spirit for that. And we can raise the money that we need because of the affluence around us. There's plenty of resources for us to be able to accomplish what's needed. And yet we understand very clearly if all of us just simply followed the baseline of tithing that's described in the scriptures, none of our churches would ever be in want. And yet we see churches closing their doors in a rapid basis right now, oftentimes because of economic fallout. We've created these ways of doing church that have absolutely no need of the Holy Spirit and church. We are paying the price. We are not seeing the gospel going forth in our culture as it once did. And it's not because the gospel has lost its power. It's because we have stopped leaning into the power source. It's because we've stopped resting in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's because we have become so complacent and so self-assured, saying that, well, we've got this, Lord. It's all good, God. We can take care of this. And we can't. We are no better than these scared little boys without the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8, we're going to get there in a couple of weeks. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Please, church, don't miss the global plan and purpose of God. This is why we invest in folks like Matt and Shannon Reynolds who are taking the gospel to India, a place where there are 2,000 people groups that have little or no access to the gospel, have not heard that Jesus Christ is the one name given under heaven by which men might be saved. They don't know what we know. They've not heard what we've heard. They've not witnessed what we've witnessed, but they can as folks go. But it's not enough for us just to foot the bill. We also must pray and we also must go ourselves. You see, that's scary. Leaving the borders of the comfortable United States is scary. Yes, it is. Don't you think that the mission of these disciples was scary? It was, it was scary enough in Jerusalem. They're just three days removed from Christ being crucified, seeing that, some of them, from a distance. They're just three days removed from that, and now he's saying, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. I'm going to send you to the nations. 
You think it's bad here in Jerusalem. Hey, wait till you get to places like Corinth and Ephesus. Remember, Paul goes in there and, and he's stoned. I, one of my favorite pictures of Paul in the New Testament is the day on which they drug him outside of the city and stoned him and left him for dead. And then Paul picks himself up and goes back in the city. Now that's either insanity or that's the power of God on display. I mean, I'm sorry, folks, but if, if somebody takes you outside the city to execute you and you get up and walk back in, there's only those two choices. You are either loony as a jaybird or you, or you are walking in the power of the Spirit. You are walking in the power of the Spirit. I pray that the Lord will begin to show us what that looks like. Will begin to give us a boldness that can't help but speak about Him. Even when it costs us. Because when it costs us, it has its greatest effect. The problem for many of us is that the gospel has never been costly enough to us. We're all too comfortable in our Christianity. I pray the Lord is calling us into a new season. Finally this morning, Beginning in verse 50, we see Christ's ascension before his disciples. And we're going we're gonna to talk so much more about this here in a couple of weeks because uh, Luke saw fit by the leading of the Holy Spirit as he's writing these accounts to end his gospel and then to begin the book of Acts with this account of Christ's ascension. And, and the reality is, church, this is one of the aspects uh, of Jesus' life and ministry that doesn't get a lot of press among us. We talk all the time about his death and resurrection, and we should. I don't want to minimize that in any way. But the ascension of Christ is a necessary aspect of his resurrection life. Let me give you a few, few reasons why. First of all, you realize that there are ten separate resurrection accounts in the Scriptures. You'll find three in the Old Testament in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, those two powerful prophets that God called out to minister in the days of those wicked kings of Israel. And there were three different times in which folks were raised from the dead during their ministry. And then you go into the New Testament and Jesus begins his ministry and he also raises three from the dead. The last one being in John chapter 11, his friend Lazarus. And then, of course, we find the resurrection of Jesus, which just so happens to be the seventh resurrection. If you know anything about the power of the number seven in the scriptures, it symbolizes perfection, completion. And he was number seven in the list of those who were raised from the dead. But then there were three after him in the ministry of Peter and Paul in the days of those early disciples. Ten resurrection accounts in the scriptures. And yet, here's the thing about Jesus' resurrection. All the other nine got the joyous privilege of dying again. Now, I'm being a little sarcastic when I say that. But the daughter of Jairus that Jesus raised from the dead, we don't know any more about her story, but at some point later on, she died again. Lazarus. His friend who was raised from the dead, we don't know how many years he lived after that experience, but eventually, Lazarus died again. Eutychus, 
that Paul raised from the dead. Remember that boy that was listening to the Apostle Paul as he was teaching late into the night the scriptures and he's sitting up in that upper room window and he falls asleep. This is a warning about falling asleep in church, by the way. He falls asleep and he falls out the window and dies. And Paul goes down and raises him from the dead. And yet Eutychus later died. We don't know the, the story, but we just know at some point these folks all faced death again, but not Jesus. This is why the ascension is so necessary and relevant to what we're discussing in these days. This is why Luke chose to, to deliver this account to us two different times at the end of Luke and at the beginning of Acts because the ascension proves the reality of the resurrection that death could not hold him. The resurrection, first of all, means that he is king above all kings. That he is king above all kings. The, the ascension of Christ harkens back to so many pictures in the Old Testament of those days when the kings would come back from war. There's one beautiful picture in the Psalms of David returning from war to Jerusalem and going up the Temple Mound in victory. And it's a beautiful psalm that describes David as he is rejoicing in victory over his enemies and the people are rejoicing with him and there's a wonderful parade that's taking place and he is walking through the streets of Jerusalem and walking up that hill, ascending up to where the temple was, ascending up to the place where God was worshipped. And all of it was a precursor to the day when not just any old king, but the king of kings would make a different kind of ascent. He would ascend not just up some old hill or not just up some mountain, but he would ascend. He would lift off the face of the earth before his disciples and he would ascend to heaven. It's a powerful thing that's taking place here. And it's affirmed a time and time again in the New Testament Scriptures. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 1. Speaking of Christ, it says, After making purification for sins, after the cross, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's why the ascension is necessary. That's why He rose back to heaven and did not just disappear. He was setting before them this truth that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. That He has power not just over life and death, but He has power over gravity and every other thing that He created. He is the conquering King. But you'll notice, look at the last verse we read this morning. Verse 51, he blessed them, he departed from them, he was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him. And returning to Jerusalem with great joy, they were continually in the temple blessing God. By the way, Luke's gospel begins and ends with a scene in the temple. In Luke chapter 1, we find old Zechariah who was doubting the reality of what God had told him and was stricken mute in the days before his son John, now we know him as John the Baptist, came into the world. It begins with a scene of doubt in the temple 
But here we see a scene of great delight in the temple. By the end of Luke, we see that this ascension means that he is worthy of our worship. Ascension of Christ means that he is worthy of our worship, that he is Lord God Almighty, that he is high and lifted up, that he is full of glory, that he is worthy of our worship because what he was showing them in this moment is that he is the living God. He was showing them that I am more than just a prophet, that I am more than just a moral example, that I'm more than just a good teacher. He is God in the flesh come to dwell among us who took the fullness of our sins upon himself, but he proved the reality of his resurrection and that he would not die again like all those who had been raised before and after him would be. He proved the reality of his resurrection by ascending to heaven in front of those disciples that they would go forth with the gospel message and praise be to God, we sit here today because of what happened in those days. He is worthy of our worship. Revelation 5 shows us the rest of the story. The Apostle John, who, by the way, saw the ascension, years later on the island of Patmos was given a vision of things yet to come. And he says, And then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I would dare say they wanted to continue that list. He is worthy of it all. He is worthy of it all. And he proved it by dying at the cross, by being the lamb who was slain. But he also proved it by the fact that he rose from the dead. And the reverberations of his resurrection continue to shake us today. They continue to loose our lips in witness. They continue to open our hearts in worship. They continue to spur us on to walk with him in difficult days. He never once promised his disciples, hey guys, you know what? Now that you're going to have the power of the Holy Spirit, it's all going to be easy peasy from now on. It's all just going to be simple. It's all just going to be straightforward. Everyone's going to want to hear the message you've got to proclaim. No. It was going to be the most difficult thing that they had ever done. And church, let us not forget, walking with Jesus will be the most difficult part of our existence in this earth. He never promised you that it would be easy. He never promised you that it would be full of peace and joy and love from those that you would interact with. But he did promise you he'd never leave you or forsake you, and he sealed that promise with the guarantee of his Holy Spirit living within you. He did promise you that every word of the Scriptures would be fulfilled so that when we look to Revelation chapter 5, we see this is the end of the story, folks. And then we go to Revelation chapter 7 and we see a multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation gathered around the throne of God. The end game is not just to have churches on every street corner. The end game is not just to meet budget or to have Bible studies. The end game of God is not just that we would be able to market well this mission and this message that he's given to us. The end game of God is that people would be rescued by the blood of Christ 
from every tribe and tongue and nation. May we not miss that. May we not waste what He has given us just sitting and stewing in this sanctuary until He returns. I'm praying in these days that God is going to begin to call out some from our number who would say, I want to join those on the front lines in places like Indonesia today where there are hundreds and hundreds of islands in which peoples live that have never heard the gospel. They don't have a Bible in their own language. There are still, did you know this today, there are still 2,000 languages in the world today that do not yet have a Bible. 2,000 languages that still do not have scriptures in their own language that they can read. And we say, well, what's the big deal? Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. How can they hear unless someone's sent? How can they hear unless the word is brought to them in a way that they can understand? Perhaps God will call out some from our midst right here. Perhaps in these days we might become known more as a church who sins than as a church who gathers. Not be known just by how many people we can fit in this room, but be known by how many God has called out from this room to go to places that many of us have never heard of. This is the mission, folks. It's not just to be good people who walk around bearing the name of Jesus. The same thing that he called these disciples to is the same thing that he has called us to. The only question is, will we continue to shrink back in fear or will we walk in the power of the Spirit? For some of you, that may mean that tomorrow morning the Lord is going to give you utterance. He's going to give you words to say to that coworker that you know does not know Jesus Christ. And it's fearful. You're thinking, I don't know where I would even begin he promised those early disciples, words will be given to you. You just lean back into the Holy Spirit and let Him work through you. For some of you, He's going to begin to ignite that fire in your heart for world missions to where you're going to get to the place where you just can't escape it. I've got to go. I don't know what else I could possibly do with my life that would be greater than this. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you the rest of the story. There is nothing greater than this. The end goal of God is the greatest thing for which we could expend our lives. And if we are wasting our lives on things that are going to be burned up, that, are, that, raw, that moth and rust are going to destroy, as Jesus said, if we are wasting our lives trying to climb the corporate ladder, trying to, to build our families, build our bank accounts, if we are wasting our time with worldly things and not about the mission of God in the world, not seeing that eternal things are coming right to our doorstep, It would be so easy for us to waste our day.